you know, every child that's saved from a ruptured appendix in Guyana, I mean, every baby that's born by an emergency cesarean section in Uganda, you know, maybe the child that discovers a cure for cancer or a vaccine for the next pandemic or a way to stop global warming. Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts, Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. Dr. Brian Cameron is a pediatric surgeon at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. He has dedicated his career both to pediatric surgery and to global surgery and has worked around the world in resource-limited settings. This was a particularly memorable episode for us because Dr. Cameron actually retires this year, and so this was really a chance for us to ask him about his career, his life story, and of course about his passion, global surgery. Congratulations again to Dr. Cameron on his absolutely well-earned retirement. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your where you grew up and your training pathway for those of us who don't know you as well? Well, I grew up in Hamilton, and I was the oldest son of the first pediatric surgeon at McMaster. Um, and actually, it seemed that dad was always being called off to the hospital. So I was resolved never to become a doctor and certainly never to become a surgeon. Uh, however, obviously that didn't work out and he did inspire me. Um, when I went to Calgary uh, to train as a family doctor, uh, Dr. Hugh Galley, who you might have uh, been aware of, Chad, uh, took me aside after my surgical internship and uh, actually told me that somebody just dropped out of the general surgery program and I should consider transferring into surgery. So uh, Tate McFedrin, professor, called me soon thereafter and I was in. Um, some years later, after finishing general surgery, I did a pediatric surgery fellowship in Vancouver with Jeff Blair, who's certainly the model of a global surgeon, and Graham Fraser. And uh, so I guess I could say my, my profession is pediatric surgery, but my passion is global surgery. And um, I sort of ended up in this direction, both congenital and acquired uh, reasons, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting you you bring up Jeff Blair. We had him on the podcast, and and he was uh, he was superb as well. You you know you you mentioned the term global surgery, and I was wondering if you could define for our listeners you know, what exactly is that? Because I think it's in some ways confusing, and in some ways quite quite simple. So, what does that term mean for you? Yeah, you know that that's a really good question, Chad. And I think there's actually been quite a bit of debate about you know, what is the definition of international or global surgery? But I think it's becoming clearer. Um, 
and I think uh, thinking back to my you know my own perspective on it, as a teenager, I was I was quite inspired reading about missionary surgeons like uh, Albert Schweitzer in Africa, and uh, Canada's Robert McClure was a uh, went to China, and um, you know I learned that there were great disparities in the world, and and later I'd learned that. 10% of the world's population has 90% of the world's operations. So I thought I might be able to contribute something by being a surgeon in a resource constrained environment to help fill that gap of inequity. Um, along the way of life, I became a member of the Baha'i faith community. And I think what attracted me there was this vision that we are all one human family. So I think that that led into my understanding of what is global surgery. So to come back to your question, um, I think my understanding of global surgery has changed. Uh, it's not just one person going to do something. As a surgeon, you know, uh, we all know we can't really do anything just by ourselves. We need a team. And um, unless I, you know, unless we train others and build capacity, uh, there won't be anybody there to care of our patient, care for our patients in the long term. So I understand the field of global surgery really to be about collaborating in partnerships, specifically in resource limited settings. So that means uh, in less developed countries, if you like, um, being an advocate for change, um, developing medical expert expertise in population health, uh, trying to model leadership and humanitarian service. So you can, you can sense I'm sort of listing all of the CanMed's competencies and I think global surgery really aligns with all of them. And then, you know, this could take place in Fiji or in Guyana, or it could be a, a surgical practice amongst rural and indigenous populations of Canada, for example, who don't have adequate access to surgical care. Yeah, Dr. Cameron, you know, as I've spent some time thinking about this and doing a little bit of work, not nowhere, nowhere near what you've done, but you know, I have come to kind of dislike this term global surgery because in part it sort of suggests going away somewhere to participate in building the ability to do surgery or building access to surgical care. Um, and I almost wonder if we need a, a new term because I, I think that um, the issues that plague Indigenous Canadians in in Canada, in terms of being, having uh, prompt and timely access to surgical care, are just as problematic as uh, the work that uh, you know the, the patients in Mubarara, Uganda, um, in terms of not having access to prompt uh, surgical care as well. Do do you do you ever think that maybe we need a different term, or or do you think that we just need to get people to understand it a bit better? Yeah, you know, I I I think that's a really good point. Uh, Amir. Um, and uh, I, I agree. I think the conception of what is global surgery has changed to include um, aspects of surgical care, even within our own country or our own backyard. Um, as you say, you don't have to travel to do global surgery. But I think if I were to look at it as what does it mean to, quote, be a global surgeon, it's a set of, I think, the set of skills and competencies that are, that are are there. Understanding of population health, as I mentioned, uh, apply equally to serving underserved parts of Canada as they would uh, in remote parts of Africa. I agree with that. 
Um, but I think, you know, truthfully, if we look at the overall burden of surgical disease globally, uh, you know, 90% of the need is in the uh, uh, low and, and the middle income countries. Uh, and Canada really is, you know, pretty well off in terms of resources. I think work by people like you and, and many others has really brought global surgery into the forefront. And it's really made global surgery a viable academic pathway, for example. And, and I think increasingly uh, funding agencies are, are recognizing that having access to surgical care, uh, as you point out, is really a, a priority for population health. But, but can you sort of explain for our listeners, why is it so important when you uh, compare it to other uh, diseases or other potential uh, uh, public health targets, like, for example, uh, controlling hypertension or, or diabetes, why is surgery, uh, in your mind, still such an important thing to target uh, from a global health perspective? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question, especially now when, you know, COVID uh, is, is really the only health issue that we're talking about and spending money on at the moment. But um, this question comes up a lot, you know, people say, well, isn't surgery expensive? I mean, aren't infectious diseases and chronic diseases, you know, more important globally? Um, and I would have thought the same thing, but actually the true answer uh, surprised me. And it would probably, you know, surprise many of your listeners to learn that a district hospital in Africa that provides you know, basic essential emergency surgical care. I'm talking about, you know, managing injuries such as open fractures, uh, being able to do cesarean sections, emergency laparotomies for perforations, fixing hernias. I mean, pretty basic general surgery stuff. It's actually more cost effective to run that hospital in terms of preventing death and disability than many public health programs, including vaccines. So, uh, and how do we know this? Well, I mean, I'm not saying I, obviously I don't say, I'm not saying I don't support vaccination, but, um, but the health economists, and these are people at the Population Health Institute in Washington and, and the, you know, the uh, Murray and Lopez who really have led this, this development of, of uh, measuring the global burden of disease using disability adjusted life years or DALIs. Uh, so these health economists have worked out a methodology using DALIs that proves that basic surgical care is a cost-effective component of primary health care. And, um, you know, surgical conditions globally, such as trauma, um, unnecessary maternal death, I mean, even many cancers obviously are surgical. Uh, the overall burden of disease uh, is at least 11% minimum of the total global burden of disease. In fact, trauma alone uh, causes more death and disability globally than HIV, malaria, and TB combined. So if you look at where the burden of disease is and the relative resources or lack of resources that have historically been put into surgical care, uh, we've really got a long way to go to advocate for improving uh, those numbers. Yeah, ab absolutely. And uh, I, I'd point uh, our listeners to some links in our show notes. I think the Lancet Commission on Global Surgery published in 2014 also does a really great job to kind of talk about all the, the issues and summarize all the issues that, that you've been talking about. And, yeah, that's, and that's make a the good case. reference. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to delve a little bit into your interests in global surgery and, and kind of talk about some of the early things that maybe led you into, into getting interest into global surgery. 
Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of your early experiences, particularly I'm thinking as, uh, as a medical student, and, uh, and what those experiences uh, taught you and, and how they sort of shaped your interest in global surgery going forward? Uh, yeah, sure, Amir. I, I did med school at Queens in Kingston. And I got, we, Pat and I, my wife and I got hooked up with a program called Canadian Crossroads International. And uh, through them, uh, uh, we were able to go to Sierra Leone in West Africa for three months in, in, during my clerkship year. Um, and so I was at working, uh, doing uh, an elective really at a, a rural clinic in Sierra Leone. And um, I can probably tie this into you know, the last question as well, but I was really shocked to see the number of newborn babies who were dying of tetanus. I mean, that's something I'd never seen in, in Canada. And um, obviously tetanus is an infectious disease, but it's a great concern to surgeons who treat trauma. I mean, I knew that um, you know, mothers in Canada were routinely given a tetanus vaccine to prevent neonatal tetanus in their babies through passive immunity. And uh, I was just shocked that these mothers didn't seem to be getting vaccinated. And then I noticed that just outside the little house I was staying in was an abandoned Jeep in the front yard. And it was been there so long, the grass was growing up through the roof of the Jeep. And uh, on its side was written WHO maternal vaccination program. So I looked at this vehicle, I said, hey, I mean, why aren't mothers being vaccinated against tetanus? What happened to this program? And, and when I talked to the local hospital leadership, the answer really surprised me. But you know, I've reflected on it since, and I think I understand it better. They said that, you know, obviously the WHO funding had stopped and the hospital had run out of petrol, out of gasoline for its generator. So they had a choice. They had to choose to use the petrol for the hospital generator rather than for the Jeep for the vaccination program. Um, so they could keep, keep the hospital going to perform emergency cesarean sections and uh, save mothers and do other surgery. And, you know, it really upset me that the local hospital director had to even make that choice. I mean, we can't imagine sort of setting that kind of priority in our own setting here. But it also showed me how, you know, how complex priority setting can be when you don't have much. Um, and, you know, in fact, they probably made the right decision in terms of the most cost-effective use for that gasoline was to provide surgical care in the hospital. Uh, so I think that experience really, um, it challenged me and inspired me and kept me interested in wanting to kind of get connected to this uh, international surgery field. That's an amazing story. You know, Dr. Cameron, you've been so many places, um, you know, in particular, um, the stories you've you've provided us already, but you've also been to Fiji. How, what, what was that experience like? How was that? <laughs> I tell people I went to work at you know to to serve in Fiji. Everybody's got a vision of which is true of those yeah. lovely beaches and yeah, <laughs> sandy exactly. beaches and sunny skies. And and actually, it's a beautiful country. It was really uh, uh, we were so fortunate to go there. But I, so what happened was I, I did a year's locum in northern Newfoundland at the Grenfell Hospital after I finished my general surgery. And I'll tell you, for any young surgeon who's interested in learning about general surgery, go to rural Canada, I mean, and work with some, you know, some of the fantastic mentors that, that, that are working in those settings. And I learned a lot of stuff there, you know, including how to do open prostatectomies. 
and pin hips. <laughs> but um, anyway, I uh, then found this job at the Fiji School of Medicine, employed by their Ministry of Health. And so uh, my, my wife, my two young kids, we moved to Fiji. Um, and I was one of three surgeons in the main national, it's called the War Memorial Hospital. And we stayed there for four years. Um, so after the first two years, I actually came back to visit Calgary, Chad, and, and uh, Professor Peter Cruz uh, invited me to give a talk and, and, and um, about my experience. And he put the title of the talk, which was From Surgical Resident to Dean in Two Years. Which I got love a lot out of everybody. Yeah, that's and, great. <laughs> because that's exactly what happened. I mean, months after I arrived in Fiji, uh, there was a coup. Uh, many of the elites and the expatriates left. And, uh, you know, I was one of the few remaining faculty at this really long established, like 100 year old medical school. So uh, they made me the dean for a year. And, um, you know, we had so many wonderful experiences there. Uh, it really shaped my career. I mean, it shaped my priorities going forward in life and obviously a wonderful experience for our family. But um, I think one particular story that uh, sticks with me that, you know, sort of illustrates how we never know uh, what impact we make just by trying to do our best for our patients. Um, so I was a young, you know, new consultant there um, in Fiji and I'd done a gastrectomy for cancer on a 50 year old woman. And the operation had actually gone technically really well. I, I was really pleased with myself. <laughs> um, however, uh, the next morning, I went to do rounds with the resident, and I'm looking around on the ward, and I said, well, where's our patient from yesterday? Sorry, sir, she died last night. What? I said, I'm sure I was shouting. I mean, why didn't you call me? Well, sir, we never call the consultant at night. <laughs> well, I mean, you can imagine, I was so upset, as you can imagine, um, and I just was trying to hold a lid on my my exasperation. But the follow-up was really the fantastic part of the story, which is that about 15 years later, so I'm back in Canada and I get an email um, and it's from that very Fijian resident who found me on the internet, Dr. Sidaveni Vidiambola, who is now the head of surgery at the War Memorial Hospital. So he found my contact and he let, wanted to let me know that they now had an intensive care unit. And he said, he remembered, wow. he remembered how upset I had been when that patient of mine died post-op uh, and how I had kept my cool. Although, honestly, that's not the way I remembered it. But anyway, he wanted to let me know that now, uh, you know, a post-op patient would not die because of inadequate care. And I, and I thought, wow, that's, that's just, there's so many wonderful aspects to that uh, story. And, and I think, you know, those are the kind of experiences really, I think that can inspire any of us as, as surgeons to, uh, you know, just want to want to keep doing it. Uh, it's a truly beautiful story. It's a great story. It's, it's, it's funny, because the first procedure I did as a staff guy in a, in a different country, which happened to be Haiti, was a partial gastrectomy as well. So maybe, maybe there's something to that. I don't know. You know, what, one of the interesting guests that we had on the podcast was Emily Zhu. And I, I don't know if you know her. Uh, she's a trauma surgeon in critical care. I do. In, uh, yeah. yeah, in Van I Vancouver. Thought, and I, yeah, you know. I listened to her interview. Work. I listened yeah. to her. That was a great interview. Emily. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, as you heard, one of the things that we talked about in that 
I think both of us were really passionate and, and intent about was the concept of, of legacy and, and leaving hopefully more behind than, than you take from any of these places where you and I and Amir and many others have, have been. Uh, clearly one of the places that, that you've returned to over many, many years is Guyana. So I was wondering if you could talk to us about Guyana and how that connection came about and, and uh, all the amazing stuff that you've done there. Mm. Yeah, I, I'd, be, I'd love to. Um, well, Guyana is, is an English-speaking country uh, on the Caribbean coast of South America. So it's just east of Venezuela. Um, and they say that if you, when you visit, well, I would say when you visit Guyana, you just fall in love with the people. And uh, they say that if you drink the black water and eat the laba, you will always come back to Guyana. Well, so I guess I drank the black water, which is actually the, the water in the creek colored by tannin from the jungle leaves. And I did eat some laba, which is a fairly tasty wild rodent, but well cooked. Um, so uh, I just kept going back at least twice a year for a couple of decades. Um, the very first time I visited Guyana was in 1995. And I was working with a health project uh, coordinated by the local Baha'i community in a very remote region of the country. Um, one of the poorer part of the country with 34 indigenous villages. So uh, the general socioeconomic status was, was challenging. The small hospital had not had a full-time resident doctor for years. Um, Dr. Jamshid Adun, who was uh, a Baha'i friend and a Canadian urologist had taken early retirement to volunteer services down there. And he was asked to move to this remote village of Lethem, uh, which is near the Brazilian border. And uh, he lived in a, a little house where he had to filter his water. Uh, I remember he used a car battery to power a small fluorescent light bulb. And that was it for, you know, there was no electricity. And uh, he found a small hospital with basically a non-functioning operating room which he developed and, and made, made things work over the, ups, over the next seven years. So he lived there for seven years. Um, we would visit with surgical supplies and accompany him on outreach clinics. So eventually I met a few of the surgeons in the main city of Georgetown, which is along the coast, uh, population 300,000 or so. The population of the whole country is only about 800,000. Um, so I did some teaching at their medical school and I operated with them on some of their pediatric patients. But um, one thing they, they complained that they would, you know, they would send someone away for surgical training, uh, but they wouldn't return. So, um, so they decided they wanted to start their own surgical training program. Um, and that sounded ambitious, but then I found that a needs assessment had actually been done by Dr. Robert Taylor, who's a, really a Canadian global surgery pioneer for, from Vancouver several years prior. And um, I had some links in the Canadian embassy, was able to find some Canadian aid funding. And so we started this partnership between CAGS and Guyana to train surgeons in Guyana. And over the next five or six years, I think we had uh, at least a, probably around 50 Canadian surgeons that visited, usually for two weeks at a time. And um, now 15 years later, um, the program runs independently. I mean, it really has been a success. The, that original cohort of, of uh, a dozen surgeons are running the surgical services and the residency program. 
Um, I mean, one of the cool recent things, one of them actually spent, uh, one of the young surgeons spent last year in Hamilton doing a vascular fellowship. So he returned there as the first country's first vascular surgery. And he recently performed uh, the first successful aortic aneurysm repair in the country. So um, the CAGS project has led to many partnerships uh, that have built surgical capacity in a number of specialties there in Guyana. And um, I mean, I, I have to add that uh, having my supportive clinical partners here at McMaster uh, has really been essential to allowing me to do these ongoing visits to Guyana. Uh, so I'm really very grateful to them. Sorry, I was uh, doing the 2020 thing and, and, and trying to talk with uh, while being muted. Um, there's there's a there's a, f a number of comments that I I, I want to make about the work that you've done. I mean, first of all, you're such a humble person, and I've gotten to see that firsthand. You know, some people might have been shouting all that that work that you've been doing from the rooftops, but you you've just been quietly kind of plugging away and doing this kind of deep, long long term kind of work for for years. Um, and the second thing is that I, when I went to Guyana, one thing I noticed is that it's kind of a unique place in that, you know, it, 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 it's not a very big country, as you pointed out. And uh, it also has, uh, it, it certainly has many resources uh, in that it's not like, a, you know, what we might stereotypically think about in terms of uh, not having, uh, you know, petrol to run the, the hospital. It's not like that. But certainly they, they have to work within some uh, resource uh, uh, limitations. Uh, and in particular, you know, one of the things that was that bothered me while I was there is that you'd see all this, for example, laparoscopic equipment that was lying around, um, not being used, that had been donated. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of the unique challenges that perhaps Guyana faces in terms of delivering surgical care, uh, kind of having to juggle all these different aspects to their situation. Yeah, sure, Amir. And that's, um, you know, it's it's always, I, I love going there with somebody else. I enjoyed going there with you because I see new things through new eyes. And uh, that's, an, that's an interesting observation. Um, and I mean, that's a good thing to talk about. I mean, laparoscopic surgery, you know, it's a good example of a new technology and, and um, you know, like everywhere in the world, it's highly desired by surgeons in resource-constrained environments like Guyana and Uganda. Um, but I think um, you would probably agree. I mean, what, I, what we've learned here is that here in Canada, uh, you know, we take many things for granted. Um, uh, for example, stable electricity and gas supply in the operating room. I mean, we've got biomedical engineers and we've got, you know, functioning autoclaves. Um, but and I've been there trying to do a laparoscopic procedure in Guyana when the power went out. And, you know, when the power stops, the insufflator stops, there's no lights in the operating room, and you have a laparoscope in the belly, uh, it's pretty hard to do anything. Um, so really, you know, to build a successful program, um, you really need the long view, as you said, you need patience, a supportive team. And really, you know, all those CanMed's competencies we talk about, leadership, advocacy, you know, um, uh, our, our professionalism, all important. Um, and really, it's taken 15 years. We, we first introduced the Fundamentals of Laparoscopic Surgery, FLS course uh, training in Guyana about 15 years ago. And it was about two years ago, we had a Guyanese surgeon 
come to Hamilton. I think it was probably just after you had visited Guyana, Amir. And he was here for a year in Hamilton, Oakville, uh, training as a clinical fellow, focusing on laparoscopic surgery. So uh, he has returned to Guyana and he's actually got all the equipment working. We sent some more equipment back with him. Um, he's doing, you know, advanced procedures, lap colectomies. But I think importantly, he is training and supporting the nurses, the biomedical engineers, the, and training other residents and surgeons in the technique. So I think he's been key to actually supporting the continuity of that program. And I think, you know, that relates back to your point that so often we think just donating the technology, donating the equipment is enough. Um, but, you know, I've seen terrible <laughs> examples of, you know, you donate something that doesn't have the right power supply and somebody plugs it in and it, 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 it explodes. Or, um, you know, there's a lot of examples of mistakes like that that have been made all, all through well-intentioned efforts. And uh, But fundamentally, it's about, you know, developing the, human resources uh, that will sustain a program. And, uh, and then you can add the technology you know, in there. Can you talk a bit about what it was like to develop uh, the master's in surgery or, or the residency program in Guyana? Uh, how did you, you know, logistically and practically go about doing that? Uh, what, like what, what actually is involved in, uh, in starting a residency program? I don't think any of us even, even think about that. You know, we just sort of slot into it. We don't really think about the mechanics of actually setting up a program like that, setting up the accreditation of it. So can you speak a little bit about mechanistically how that uh, works? Yeah, that's, um, that's a thoughtful question. And, and uh, I hope it's fair of me to reference back what we ended up, we did write two articles in Canadian Journal of Surgery that you can maybe link to this podcast to discuss some of the, some of the you know, the uh, challenges and the successes, I guess, uh, about the program. But, you know, just sort of thinking about some basic principles um, of why it succeeded. Um, at that time, Canada had CEDA. So there was some aid funding and that we used that initially to help support uh, travel expenses for Canadian faculty going down, but we split it. And so that the Guyanese were also able to pay some of their faculty to do some teaching and, uh, and, to, and to sort of develop a local office of postgraduate uh, uh, education. And uh, really it would not have worked without Dr. Madan Rambaran there, who was really the local leader, surgical leader who wanted to push this forward. Um, so that was essential, a bit of funding, strong local leadership. And, um, and then the next piece was uh, to recruit surgeons through uh, kegs who were interested in going to visit. And, you know, the deal was you had to go for at least two weeks. Um, we organized and structured the didactic part of the program uh, in two week modules so that when you went, you know, you taught your module, it might be on thyroid disease, it might be on, you know, colon cancer. Um, and we also were realistic initially about the length of the training. Um, most of these guys, by this point, the guys, I mean, most of the young surgeons had graduated from medical school and worked several years as house officers. So in terms of technical skills, they were actually pretty good. Um, and so we were really, I think, uh, 
uh, with these didactic modules trying to cover a, a, you know, a, a course of curriculum in surgery over a period of two years and then have a, you know, have a pretty rigorous exam at the end of that. Um, and then, um, and that was all really the Canadian support really helped provide some outside validity and credibility for the, uh, to the program. But it was always meant to uh, train to the level of a local qualification that would provide competencies to, for the graduate to go to a regional hospital and practice safe surgery. That was basically the goal of that program. I mean, over the years, it's, it's evolved. They've, they've expanded it now into a uh, four-year program with a master's degree. Um, and um, the focus also has, uh, you know, the, I think the subspecialties providing uh, clinical teaching in the hospital have also really developed over the years. Uh, but I think that, you know, the basic thing I learned from that was that at the beginning of it, there was a lot of skepticism. Um, there were actually, the residents weren't that keen in even signing up for it because they didn't think it would happen. But what I think what I learned from it was if you can get something started, even though it's not perfect, just get it started and get going and be consistent with it. And, you know, I was going back for initially uh, probably at least three times a year and then keeping, you know, keeping in close touch with all the other visitors. So um, I, I, I think, you know, there are a lot of factors that led to its success. And, and uh, but as I said, I think I would uh, can't underestimate the local, the, the couple of local surgical leaders. I should mention Dr. Dean Sharma also in Guyana, who was really one of the visionary local surgeons that wanted to see this succeed. One of the things that I've always really admired about the way that you do things is that you've in, integrated the use of technology in places that you've worked, but it, in a very smart, sophisticated, and needs-driven way. You know, I, I think of the work that you and Abdullah Saleh have done in Murbarara in Uganda with uh, developing an EMR um, and, and other projects that uh, I've, I've had the pleasure of, of learning about from you. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about integrating technology when we're doing this global surgery work? You know, because I think it's, it, it is very tempting sometimes to think, you know, uh, we'll come in, we'll, we'll, we'll modernize all the clinic spaces and uh, make it all on a, a EMR and, you know, have the hospital pharmacy be on a, uh, a computer software so they can keep track of their interv in inventory and all these kinds of things. But it often doesn't work. So can you talk a little bit about how you think about that and, and how you introduce a new technology into, into a place that you're working? Yeah, that's really a great question, Amir. Um, you know, where does technology fit in global surgery? Um, well, again, just to highlight, I mean, I should let your audience know that, that you really helped us a lot with this geospatial uh, mapping of trauma patient locations, which was part of this little project partnering with Embarara in Western Uganda and Dr. Martin Satuma um, to develop, help them develop a trauma registry. It was really spearheaded, as you mentioned, by Dr. Abdullah Saleh, who's now a pediatric surgeon in Edmonton. And um, I think one interesting thing about that little project started really with, let's, do, let's help develop a trauma registry and, and get some handle on where injured patients are coming from and what their needs are in the emergency department. 
and pre-hospital care. But then it actually evolved to helping them develop a, an EMR uh, admission process because Abdullah main problem was that uh, there was no proper patient registration to get trauma records when patients came into hospitals. So, so it sort of illustrates that it's important to understand what's really needed uh, and not necessarily persist with what you think is needed. Um, I mean, I think the jury's still out on the impact of that particular project, but you know, we keep in touch with uh, Dr. Satuma and he really has some awesome nurse research assistance there. I mean, I think one thing uh, it really is possible to do really high quality uh, research when you have good partners. Um, but um, other, you know, I think one thing about visiting surgeons in a resource constrained environment, uh, you, I think I, I come to understand that, you know, technology doesn't answer all the problems and, and it's sort of, you don't want to be uh, somebody with a um, hammer thinking everything's a nail. So, um, you, you know, but when you go and visit surgeons working in that environment, you know, you learn how to better use, uh, reuse or adapt technology and new low cost techniques. And, you know, there's many examples of, this is called reverse innovation, um, where uh, experiences gained in low middle income countries uh, are then transferred back to, you know, to high income countries because they're good, adaptive, low-cost technologies. And you know, one example actually is um, the widespread use of low-cost ketamine for uh, pedi safe pediatric anesthesia in Africa has been going on for a long time. Uh, and interestingly, this practice is now sort of coming back and being talked about by pediatric anesthesiologists here as being, you know, something new and interesting. So, it's an example of this reverse innovation idea that when we have partnerships in low resource settings, we often can learn as much as we give. And, um, and certainly technology specifically uh, can uh, take off. Uh, I mean, for example, cell phones really took off much faster in Africa than they did here. And, and, and their use of cell phones for transferring money, for example, now is way ahead of us. So there are some things we can learn with uh, how to adapt technology. I think that's so well said. There, there's so much we can learn. It, it's interesting hearing your guys' experience about an electronic injury registry. You know, Morad Hamid and I uh, from Vancouver and obviously Calgary respectively are deeply embedded with the uh, University of Cape Town, Hutuskir Trauma Group. And <clears throat> we obtained a grant at one point to essentially uh, construct and then maintain electronic injury, injury registry and the data we were getting both geospatial like you guys as well as just bread and butter demographic injury and patient data was unbelievable but our money ran out and there was no legacy to that particular project so it uh, it always reminds us I think no matter what we have done since that time that it has to have some sort of angle to yeah. ensure persistence and I couldn't agree more with you. You know, Morad and I talk about it all the time that we get much more out of um, our relationship with them than I think they do from us. There, there's no doubt, even if it's just a way of thinking. Mm -hmm. One of the other big, big challenges for sure, you know, globally is, has been COVID, pardon me, has been COVID-19. I'm curious how, how or if that has altered global surgery as a, mm -hmm. as a concept and in terms of delivery um, now and maybe even in the in the future, from from your point of view. Yeah, 
Uh, well, we sure aren't traveling much, are we? <laughs> uh, no. But, you know, but we are Zooming lots, actually. And I, I think this one thing that has, again, impressed me about technology. I mean, broadband internet in, uh, like, specifically in Guyana and in East Africa has really improved tremendously. Um, and to the point, you know, where we can have really reliable online teaching, including with, with video playing, um, with trainees in Guyana and Uganda. And I've been involved with you know, both of those groups in the last few months. And actually just yesterday afternoon, uh, I met with the current 15 uh, surgical residents in Guyana online to, to, for a pediatric surgery uh, seminar. And um, actually I was really excited that one of those surgical residents is a young woman from Lethem. Uh, and you will remember, that's the first place I visited 25 years ago with Dr. Adun. And he would be so happy, he will be so happy, actually, to know that a local Indigenous woman is now training as a surgeon in Guyana. Um, and I think, you know, the other way that COVID uh, has affected the world, I think, in, in global surgery uh, as a field is that you know, COVID has illustrated how interdependent we really are. I mean, uh, you know, what happens in Wuhan and Italy does affect what happens in Hamilton. Um, you know, in spite of the anti-globalization skeptics, uh, you know, we, I think we've demonstrated we can collaborate globally to develop solutions. And, and uh, you know, that includes solutions to the disparities in surgical care. And, um, you know, the Lancet Commission was mentioned by Amir, there's a number of other new initiatives that I think are, are continuing to stay connected in spite of COVID. Um, but, you know, if we think of, of uh, continuing to improve surgical care globally, I mean, every child that, you know, every child that's saved from a ruptured appendix in Guyana, I mean, every baby that's born by an emergency cesarean section in Uganda, you know, maybe the child that discovers a cure for cancer or a vaccine for the next pandemic, you know, or a way to stop global warming. So I think that uh, it's really, I think, expanded our global, COVID has expanded our global view. And, uh, I, you know, I'm optimistic that we're going to come through this with uh, a changed, you know, many changed perspectives. You have a number of ongoing initiatives, Dr. Cameron, with regards to global surgery. Uh, you know, one, for example, that I'll just mention is uh, some of the work that you've now, I think, handed off a little bit to Dr. Anise Barton with regards to weekly teaching for the residents in Guyana. But can you talk a little bit about uh, things that you're you're working on and uh, and ways that people could potentially get involved if, if they're interested in doing more global surgery work? Sure. Um, you know, I think that... Um, you know, for any surgeon, uh, young or old, who's who's you know being inspired by, uh, by you know by so so many people that that are are promoting global surgery in Canada. I think there's really, you know, I generally advise two things because uh, you know a lot of it's about uh, learning, and there's a couple of legacy projects that have been going on for you know, a decade or two in Canada that that not all the listeners might be aware of. What, you know, the first is the uh, annual Bethune Roundtable Conference. Um, and it was started in Toronto by uh, Drs. Massey Beveridge and Andrew Howard. And it, the cool thing about this conference is that it features invited surgeons, anesthesiologists, obstetricians from 
resource limited countries and they come to Canada and present their research and they're sponsored. And, you know, it's a fantastic meeting for learning about other specialties involved in surgical care and, you know, for networking with uh, potential partners. Uh, it didn't happen in 2020, but it's scheduled online to happen at the end of May in 2021. And um, I think the second, uh, you know, thing, I, I second uh, educational opportunity that I point people towards is the graduate program in global surgical care uh, at UBC that was started by Dr. Robert Taylor and um, not doing a self-promotion, but I'm, I'm helping facilitate the introductory course, uh, which actually has been gone from September till now. And we had uh, 20, uh, 20 participants from across the country and, and including one from Tanzania actually. Um, and that, um, that course, it, it's a graduate level course. It's really a great opportunity to learn about the core elements of you know, this new evolving specialty of global surgery. Um, so, you know, those are a couple of things I remain involved with. And um, again, I would encourage uh, any of your listeners to, uh, to Google those and, uh, you know, get connected. And, and then, you know, I think um, Vancouver, UBC, basically pretty well every Calgary, uh, pretty well every academic center in the country now has a global surgery office or at, at McMaster, we have what we call the International Surgery Desk. And it's a way to network locally with your own faculty and, um, and residents and find out, you know, what sort of projects are happening. Dr. Cameron, I had the opportunity and pleasure to, to meet your wife as well when, when uh, we were in Guyana. And uh, I was so impressed by how both of you, and, and from what I understand, your whole family had adapted to, you know, your, your traveling and, and working in many uh, amazing places. What advice do you have uh, for people who have families or maybe have young children who are interested in, in global surgery work? How do you sort of ba balance those two things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a, uh, you know, a fun question to end on, I guess that, um, and you talk about balance and I think that's always a challenge, isn't it? Cause as surgeons, uh, we're busy and uh, we're up at night. Um, it can be tiring uh, it can be exhausting and, um, you know, it can be at times some kind of feel soul destroying at, at times, but, you know, I think the piece of advice I would, I would have sort of thinking back, I would like to have given to myself, I suppose, uh, would be along the lines of that famous Bobby McFerrin song, you know, don't worry, be happy. Um, do you guys know that song? I won't sing it for you, but anyway, what, <laughs> what does it take to be happy? And I, you know, I think I learned recently uh, that according to Immanuel Kant, uh, it takes three things to be happy, something to do, uh, someone to love and something to look forward to. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've absolutely enjoyed my pediatric surgery uh, and global surgery career, but I've also been fortunate to find something to do. Uh, outside of surgery, um, you know, being part of the by faith community, I've sing. I do sing regularly, actually, in an a cappella uh, men's barbershop chorus on Wednesday nights. Uh, obviously, we're not doing much singing now with COVID, but we do meet on Zoom and uh, uh, keep connected. 
Um, you know, I've also so fortunate to find someone to love, and it's nice for you to, you know, mention having met Pat uh, Amir. I mean, we've been married for 42 years. She's put up with a lot, um, and we are blessed with, you know, our two successful children, their spouses, and now we've got four wonderful grandchildren. Um, you know, and finally, I, I guess, uh, yeah, I'm using this Kant's, Emmanuel Kant's trilogy, I suppose. I have something to look forward to. Uh, and I'm retiring from clinical practice next year. Uh, so I'm looking forward to enjoying my grandchildren, keeping active with cycling. I'm, I'm going to complete my traverse of the Bruce Trail in Ontario in the next year or so. And I'm again, once this vaccine comes out, I'm sure we'll be traveling again in uh, 2021. And I hope you guys are able to as well.